Today, I'm here to chat with Jen Lumenlon, who is the host of the Your Parenting Mojo podcast, which was named the best research-based parenting podcast by Lifehacker. And Jen is also the author of a brand new book that I've had the pleasure of digging into over the last couple of weeks, and it is called Parenting Beyond Power, How to Use Connection and Collaboration to Transform Your Family and the World. Getting Discomfortable with Jen Lumenlon. Thanks so much for joining me to chat, Jen. Thanks so much for having me, AJ. It's a pleasure to be here. So I've been reading this book and I'm not a parent and I've been really surprised by how like impactful, insightful, how relatable everything in it has been. And I just feel like that is such a sign of a book with a lot of insight and truth that you can be not in the target audience and still be like, yes, yes. Wow. Thank you for those kind words. <laughs> I was not expecting you to open with that. And yeah, it's it's always a challenge as a writer to know whether your words are going to land with somebody else. So to get some feedback that it is, is always very welcome. So thank you for that. I kind of go in with the lens more of an adult child from that perspective. And it really speaks to me that way. And it also speaks to me in terms of how I relate to my nieces and nephews and and younger people, people in positions below me in general. So it's it's been great. Awesome. Um, I love that the book is bringing together kind of a nexus between parenting and social justice. I think that's really unique and really... Um, I'm like gaining a lot of insight from that connection. And I'm just curious what your journey has been like to get to a place where that nexus has been your focus. Yeah, it's not something I saw coming. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, my daughter is almost nine at this point, And I was never particularly interested in children, never liked children, never wanted to have one. <laughs> And uh, basically ended up uh, having one so that I wouldn't be responsible for the biggest disappointment in my husband's life and did it by choice, not by accident. And, you know, spent weeks and weeks and weeks crafting a birth plan and gave no thought whatsoever to what was coming after that. <laughs> and then uh, she arrived and I realized I had absolutely no idea what I was doing and that my parenting role models were, eh, I don't know, not, not necessarily producing something that I wanted to repeat. And, but I had really good research skills. <laughs> mm. I can read really fast and I love looking at research and I realized, oh, I can use the skills that I have to close the gaps in intuition that I have. And so I ended up going back to school, getting a master's in psychology, focused in education uh, to put a framework around it so that I knew I wouldn't be missing anything important. And then added another one in education after that and started the Your Parenting Mojo podcast as a way of sharing what I was learning with other people as I was doing it. And I'd always been critical 
of the research and, you know, looking at things like, well, if they choose a sample size of 30 people and then they're extrapolating it as if it was applicable to the entire human race, then maybe there's a problem there, right? They, they uh, conduct their studies in a campus that is miles away from any urban center at noon on a Tuesday. And they wonder why they get middle-class white people <laughs> in their sample. And then they extrapolate it again. So I'd always mm -hmm. looked at those kinds of things. And over time, I was also looking at the social challenges out in the world and, and working a lot with parents and seeing them really struggling with their children's behavior. And it's like, there are these two things. There are these social challenges. There's the struggles with their children's behavior. And then it sort of kind of came together as I was looking at the research and seeing that the researchers are embedded in the same toxic cultural soup that we all are. And mm -hmm. so when they are designing interventions, for example, to change a child's outcome, what they're essentially doing is, is helping that child to be more successful in that toxic culture. And so if we want to have a different culture that isn't so toxic, that actually nurtures us and takes care of us and provides for our needs, then maybe we can't look as much to the research to understand how to do that. And so I started to see that, uh, I think the big idea in the book is that we learn about how we show up in the world from our parents. And so mm -hmm. when we're looking at these social justice issues, what we're basically looking at is power. How is power being used in relationships between different people? And where do we learn that? We learn it from our parents. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm feeling tingles, the sense of resonance, like, yeah, mm -hmm. this is so true. And I know when I think about shame, one of the ways I think about it is the enforcer of a kind of cultural norm. And as you said, if the if the culture has toxicity in it, has unhealthy, oppressive, outdated ideas, shame is going to be enforcing those in an almost invisible way sometimes. Very much so. Unconscious, at least. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious, you know, what are some of the big toxic cultural norms that we're dealing with here that are getting enforced by shame and that are being perpetuated and affecting parenting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There are three main ones that I see, and those are white supremacy and patriarchy and capitalism. And there are other factors as well. Um, but, but what I see is that the vast majority of things fit under the umbrella that's created by those three things. So what do we mean by those three things? Yeah. Um, well, white supremacy is the idea that whiteness and therefore white people are superior to everybody else. And uh, folks may be less familiar with the term white supremacy, more familiar with racism. Racism is the belief that people's traits are determined by their race, which kind of fits under white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think it's very common when we think about racism, white supremacy to think, you know, oh, yeah, the KKK, you know, really, really overtly racist organizations. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not them, so I'm not racist. <laughs> yeah. When actually our entire society is organized to privilege white ways of acting and speaking and of being in the world. And so if we are part of that culture, which we all are, then we, uh, to the extent that we can, we are, have whiter skin, right? And that we are more aligned with those ways of acting and speaking and being in the world, as you and I very much are, and the yeah. more we benefit from the privilege that comes with white supremacy. Um, patriarchy is the idea that 
there are some characteristics that are inherently masculine and there are some characteristics that are inherently feminine and elevates the masculine over the feminine. And so some examples of these might be, you know, masculine, mas quote unquote, masculine traits would be things like rationality and ambition and acquisition of wealth and protection and capability. And then when you think about the quote unquote feminine examples, they might be things like intuition and caring and radiance and surrender and creativity. And of course, all of this is completely arbitrary. <laughs> there is no reason mm -hmm. to have mm -hmm. either of these or any of these ideas attached to masculinity or fem femininity. It's just something that we have in our culture decided to do um, collectively yeah. without making a conscious decision, mostly. And now we enforce it. And we all have traits that are somewhat masculine and somewhat feminine. But again, as you mentioned earlier, shame works to corral us in a certain direction. <laughs> yeah. Corral me more towards femininity, corral you more towards masculinity, even though we have a, a lot of overlap. Um, and then we, let me define capitalism and then we can kind of see what questions you have about uh, how those intersect and, and anything else. So, yeah. so capitalism is basically a system where trade is controlled by private owners for profit. And so we are always trying to add value to something, right? We're adding value to something else and then we're selling it so that we can make money. And well, what are we adding value to, right? What was the base of all this? Well, the base of all this is the things that we can extract from the earth for free <laughs> or for, right. for low cost. And so the more we can extract from the earth, the better off we are in a capitalist society, uh, as well as the labor of people who care for other people, right? People who have children, who raise children, who do all of that work for free to create more consumers <laughs> and to raise people who will work within the system to create more stuff for other people. And it's primarily black and brown women whose labor that the whole system rests on. And uh, and so it's, it's very much a, an unsustainable system that looks sustainable as long as you mm -hmm. believe that mass, maximum extraction and uh, labor of women and particularly black, black and brown women is something that should be free and very low cost and everything else gets built up on that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for laying that all out. And I appreciate how your book does that very clearly and very systematically. And so we've talked about shame as a sort of like vague enforcer, but I'd love to get really dig in there like how how are how are these forces passed from one generation to another mm -hmm. yeah i mean that's a huge question so i i see two primary ways that these that these things are passed on one of which is shame <laughs> and the other of which is really how we use power in our relationships with our children how our parents use power in their relationships with us and the ways that they did that, um, they, they use power to shape our behavior because they looked out into the world and knowingly or unknowingly saw this white supremacist, patriarchal capitalist culture and realized, okay, my child in all of their brilliance and which sometimes I find kind of annoying because it's so much, but in, in all of their glory, they are going to struggle out there in that world. And so I'm going to shape them. I'm going right. to contain them and tell them this part of you is not going to be okay. Yeah. And maybe there was even <laughs> seeing resonance. I feel it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And 
maybe they were able to tell us, you know, I love you as you are. The world is not going to love you as you are. But more likely, they didn't have the language to articulate that. And what they said was, um, you are not okay. And you must uh, put a part of your box, a part of yourself that I find to be unacceptable because our culture finds it unacceptable in a box. And I'm going to punish you and reward you until you do that until you show up in this family in a way that is acceptable to me. And I'm going to use my power to get you to do that. And also I'm going to shame you so that you will keep doing that. And that is going to make you successful in the world because it will make you present this sanitized version of yourself to the world that I, as your loving parent, who is genuinely wanting the best for you, thinks the world is going to find acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. It, I just, it hits me. I really feel it. A sense of we're going to change the child rather than try to change the world. Yes. We're going to mold. We're going to do some inauthenticity. We're going to change you rather than trying to change a, the system. Something like because that. Because there's nothing wrong with the system, right? <laughs> right. Because the system is reality almost. Yes. Is, is right. Yes. Yeah. So in your book... I really appreciated how you focused on, well, what are the child's actual needs? What What is the child actually authentically longing for and needing and wanting? Um, and yes, as I hear that, I, I feel like a longing for a culture that looks that way. And um, I'm I'm curious to hear how is it that we lose touch with our authentic needs, even as parents? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the process for us started in that box making, right? That our, our parents did to us when they said, this is the box you will fit within and you will be acceptable to me and our family. And we will reward you with belonging and love and care and attention in our family when you fit in that box. And yeah. until we fit in that box, we knew what our needs were. <laughs> we expressed right. those needs. We had big feelings. We uh, articulated, no, that doesn't work for me. <laughs> and our parents said, they used their power to say, that is not acceptable. That is not okay. And that's how we lost touch with our needs. And so, yeah, it's so common for the parents I work with to say, not only do I not know what my needs are, I didn't even know I had needs. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> it's not super surprising when we have been punished for articulating what our needs are, that we would then forget not only what those needs are, but that even that we had them in the first place. So now the parents that I work with are finding out, whoa, I have needs. <laughs> I don't know what to do about that. And also my child is resisting every single thing that I'm asking them to do. How do I get my child to do the things I want them to do? And one of the things that I talk about in the book is that that resistance is a gift in the relationship because uh, you used to, I used to, we all used to resist our parents as well as a way of saying that doesn't meet my needs and our children mm -hmm. are doing this now. And that is their articulation of their needs. And we, by our culture have been trained resistance by children. Not okay. I'm in a position of power. It's your job to do what I want when we can, get past that and look underneath it, kind of peel back the layers a little bit, we can see that that resistance is an indicator of an unmet need. And probably more than 90% of the time, if we can identify that need, we can find a way to meet our child's need and our need at the same time. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. So resistance as a kind of compass towards these beautiful, authentic needs that are like a window into who our child really is. That, you know, I have felt in my journey, just even having nieces and nephews, a sense of, oh, I want to just, I want to discover who you really are. Along with you, your child, you're discovering who you are. I just want to discover who you are and hope that I can love all that is being revealed. And I can, but I can feel at times a resistance to kind of mold them if, you know, they're embarrassing me in public or I'm feeling like there's unsafety or something, then I want to kind of clamp in. And in your book, you know, you really highlight some of the ways how in in a system of white supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalism, we have certain kind of habituated patterns of how to get a child to do what we want. I wonder if you could highlight some of those for us. Yeah. I mean, most often nowadays in the sort of liberal circles uh, that, that many parents who are going to be listening to this are in, it's it's sort of not necessarily okay to say, you know, I, I want my child to do what they're told. <laughs> but instead, right. the language that we use is I want my child to listen. And the problem is not that your child is not listening, right? They hear you. (laughs) Really, the problem is that the child is not doing what you want them to do. And because we don't have this language of needs, we don't understand why am I even asking them to do this thing? Why is this thing important to me? And when we can't understand that and we just want to get out the door in the morning without a fight, the easiest thing to do is use our power, is to just say, you're going to do this. I'm going to drag you down the stairs and we are going to make this happen. And again, that teaches our children how to show up in a relationship where one person has more power than the other person, right? If I'm bigger than you, if I'm stronger than you, and I am forcing you to do something you don't want to do, then the lesson my child is taking from this is bigger, stronger people can force smaller, weaker people. And that is okay. That is acceptable in our culture because my parent showed me that and my parent knows everything and my parent is everything to me. So instead, when we can ask the question, what, what is it that I'm actually trying to do? Why is this important to me? Right. And, and so parents listening to this may be thinking, but I do need to get out the door first. (laughs) Okay. What is really the need here? Maybe my child has a need for connection. Maybe I have a need for kind of competence and responsibility at work, right? I want to show up in the way in the way that feels good and I can do my work and I can do a good job at my work at the time that I said I'm going to do it. So if the child has a need for connection and we're constantly telling them, go, go and get dressed, go and do this, go and do that. We're not getting connection between us. And so I, I worked with one parent who was having this struggle every single day. Get dressed. No, get dressed. No. Why don't you want to get dressed? Because I like knowing you were the last person to touch my clothes in the morning before I put them on. And, you know, the parent hears that and is, you know, heart melting. W- would I would I do this for you? Of course I would do this for you. We meet the child's need for connection. They stop resisting. And by the way, we also meet the parent's need to get out the door in the morning and, and meet their needs for competence and, and respect at work. Hmm. Yeah, it's like I hear how we we operate on the strategy level as you talk about in the book. Yes. 
we're we're on a kind of superficial level and we're not really taking the time to sink down and see what's really going on here not just for the child but for me like what am i really needing here what is the child really needing here and as you say that i feel a real sense of it sounds connective it sounds more equal as well yeah and um i imagine like it could also bring up fears for parents like if they haven't tried it will will it really will it will it really work yes. can we really meet everyone's needs is that really realistic do you find that in your client work oh yeah absolutely yeah um i mean we're so trained to use power over other people that the idea of not using that power is really scary yeah, um, yeah. i mean it's it's everywhere in our culture right more more powerful people tell less powerful people what to do and how to do it. <laughs> and so to not be in that relationship with somebody when, I mean, frankly, uh, your experience of feeling a little bit embarrassed by your nieces and nephews is probably nowhere near what their parents are feeling because their, their parenting is being judged. Uh, yes. And it's almost like people are looking at them, judging them as a person, judging their worth as a person by their child's behavior. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, shame. Can, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> you can remove yourself from that a little bit because at the end of the day, you get to hand them back. And this is not a judgment on AJ as a person. <laughs> yeah, not mine. Not my child. <laughs> my and you can even say that, right? If you're out in public and they're doing something yeah. you find embarrassing, you're like, yeah, they're not mine. I'm I don't even know this kid. <laughs> Yeah. Whereas their parents can't do that. I mean, maybe they can, but, <laughs> but society is judging them throughout the day, every day on their child's behavior. And so, uh, and that's really threatening to parents. Right. And so the idea of, well, what if my child does something that's completely socially unacceptable uh, is, is just too scary to, to contemplate. So, so I should clamp down more. I should have more control make sure that yeah. I know, you know, exactly how to navigate this. And instead, what I tend to find is that when we can loosen up a bit, and maybe we start with something that we don't even really care much about, right? Where I often advise parents to start with this is pick an issue that's really important to your child that you don't care that much about. Maybe you'd already decided you're going to allow them to have candy that day. And they come to you and they say, you know, I, I, I really want to have some candy. And then think, hmm. I don't know. I don't know if that's going to work for me. And you're kind of starting to understand each other's feelings, right? And your child is super excited about having delicious food and you're feeling worried about their health. And, you know, that's, that's legitimate. And also, so what, what are the real needs here? My, my child has a need for nourishment. Yes. And also just joy and delight in eating mm -hmm. something that's really fun to eat. I have a need to protect my child's health. In this case, I've already decided to allow this candy, but I'm going to articulate that and say, you know, I want to protect your health. I want to make sure that you're uh, eating a, a variety of foods. Um, and maybe you're making a request, you know, are you willing to, um, to, to not eat it an hour before dinner or, uh, you know, a, a request that, you know, they're easily going to be able to say yes to. And then we get to a solution that works for both of us and we can look back and say, Hey, we figured out what our needs are and we found ways to meet both of our needs. And then we can start doing it on the bigger stuff when our child, you know, doesn't necessarily understand fully how to meet their needs. We're just learning this too. Let's kind of figure this out. Let's try and understand what our needs are. And then when we can meet both of our needs, the resistance just vanishes and the old ideas about what is too strict and what is too permissive just kind of evaporate because there's two people in a relationship getting their needs met. Mm -hmm. 
So I'm hearing we're kind of starting off by determining what are the needs? Mm -hmm. What's actually happening here on both sides? Mm -hmm. And then I heard you talk about, you know, strategy to meet both needs, a kind of uh, uh, imaginative, uh, what are the possibilities here? And then you also talked about making a request. So it's sort of a, a moment where you come up with a what you think might be a good strategy for both needs and you kind of check it with the other person. Does that yeah. seem like kind of yeah, what you're definitely. saying? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and you, you mentioned earlier the idea that we get stuck in, you know, competing strategies and, and yes, we do. It's so common because we don't know how to identify our needs. And so when right. we can look past those to the needs, um, then we can imagine maybe there's another way to meet this need. And the thing about needs is there are always, always, always more strategies we can use to meet the need. It may seem like this is the only way that's going to work when actually there's probably at least 10 ways that we can meet your need in a, in a particular situation. And when you start doing with the, this with your child, what you will probably find is very quickly, your child becomes the one who starts generating these strategies that actually meet both of your needs. And that, my friends, is a magical moment (laughs) because Mm -hmm. no longer are you seeing the resistance, figuring out, okay, what's actually going on here? Um, How can we meet both of these needs coming up with the strategies instead? You know, my daughter came to me the other day and said, you know, I'm thinking about having some candy right now. And I know dinner is coming up pretty soon. And I'm guessing you're feeling worried about this. And I'm wondering if there's a way that you can be comfortable with this. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, she's eight, (laughs) which is a little older than many of the parents that I work with, but this is the kind of thing that comes when we have these conversations and children are naturally creative we were naturally creative and playful until we learned that it's not okay to be creative and playful that you need to you know get with the program do the things do your homework do the do what you're told and so our children bring these generative ideas that may never even even have occurred to us Mm -hmm. yes so so creative so kids are great with strategy creation in my experience and and as i hear you say that it's so clear that you're generating a new cultural norm here of thinking about both parties' needs rather than just, I want this, I want candy, or I want you to eat healthy food. It's like the whole family system sounds like it's getting reoriented around, okay, what are my needs, but also what are what what is my mother's needs around this? And your brain just starts thinking in that dual way. It sounds like your daughter is there. Yeah. And then the really beautiful stuff starts. We all take this out into our relationships with other people, right? We're having Mm -hmm. an argument with somebody else and we realize, oh, we're arguing over strategies. (laughs) When kids in my daughter's uh, unschooling program uh, are having a disagreement, they often come to her and, and ask for help in understanding what what's happening because they know that uh, she's going to be able to help them identify the uh, the needs that are going underneath underneath and suggest strategies that might work for both of them and i mean where where this connects back to the social justice issues is uh, i think that when we raise children who can understand their needs and can understand somebody else's needs and hold both people's needs with equal care and love and weight that we will not be able to be in relationships where we use power over other people. Because if I see your needs as just as important as my own, then I can't use power over you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems to be such a flip from capitalism, patriarchy and white supremacy. Like it's yeah. just like a very opposite. 
And, and I imagine, you know, getting from a strategy like I want candy to, well, what, what's really going on under there? There's I, I, like, what is your process for digging in? Because I, it occurs to me that I want candy could be a strategy for a lot of things. It, it could even just be a strategy for agency, you know, a, a strategy for, so how do you go about starting to like dig under the surface of well, what's really going on here? Yeah, very much so. Um, and I'm so glad you brought that up. And the way that I encourage parents in the book to start identifying needs is using the metaphor of a cupcake. <laughs> and so very often we're trying to meet the same needs over and over again. We are, right. uh, our children are. And when we can identify those things, things get so much easier because we're not thinking, okay, which one of a hundred needs is my child trying to fill right now, but which one of the ones that they do that they're trying to fill most often is happening right now. So if we imagine the cherry on top of a cupcake as the need that our child is trying to fill most often, you know, the three to five needs. And for many children, it's going to be connection and autonomy. Like I want to be the one who, who who makes important decisions about things that feel really big to me. Um, For some children, it's going to be sensory issues, right? I want to feel comfortable. Uh, It's also safety. Um, And so those those are going to be the the cherry needs for a lot of children. Underneath that is is the frosting, right? Is the next three to five things that are coming up most often. And and these might be things like, you know, food and rest. And for some kids, these are going to be cherry needs. For other kids, these are going to be frosting needs, right? There's, There's some interplay between them. And underneath that is everything else. So when we're seeing resistance from our child that we now know means I have an unmet need, we don't need to look at what's a hundred, one of the hundred, okay, how, working down the list. And I don't know, we start with the cherry, right? Is it these three to five things that I see coming up over and over again? Is there a mm-hmm. chance my child is looking for connection here? Where are we disconnected a minute ago? Did I ask them to go and do something else by themselves? Are we coming up to a period of time when we're going to be disconnected, like the child who is resisting getting dressed? Yeah getting dressed as a, um, as a strategy to put off that disconnection, right? The longer I resist getting dressed, the more I'm going to be close to you (laughs) because we can't leave the house until I'm dressed. (laughs) So when we see that need for connection, when we see the need for autonomy, I want to be the one who makes this decision. Then we can grant our child more autonomy, right? When we're talking about toothbrushing, do you want to decide what toothbrush, what toothpaste we use? Do you want to decide where we do it? Do you want to pick which tooth I brush first? <laughs> yeah, there are so many ways that we can give our child autonomy within this mm-hmm. framework of, and my need is for your safety and to make sure that you are healthy and safe. And part of that involves toothbrushing. It's it's beautiful and it's it's kind of radical in a way because- Kind of radical? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, 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 it sounds lovely, but it is radical, right? Yeah, like it, it occurs to me that as you point out these common needs, each one is quite radical in white supremacy, capitalism, and patriarchy, like um, giving a child autonomy, you know, so, just something as simple as that is threatening in a way. Um, connection is it's, it's intimate. It's um it can be taboo. It's, it's emotional. It's juicy. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's almost like asking us to think on a level that is much less superficial and much more meaningful. Um, And, and I, what else was impacting me about it? The way in which you're thinking about as a parent, 
talking about your own needs. That's also radical because it's vulnerable, isn't it? To say, well, I also have a need for connection and I also have a need for safety, even though I'm the adult who's supposed to be keeping you safe. So yeah, I just, I just want to take a moment to kind of honor, but also celebrate. Uh, this is, this is huge. Yeah. And you're, so what you were doing basically is in your relationship with your child, you are starting to heal yourself, your child, your family unit from these cultural forces just by getting below that level of you're going to do what I say you're going to do because I say you're going to do it to what do I really need in this relationship and what do you really need? I mean, if we think back to our own childhoods, really the thing that most of us wanted more than anything was to be seen and heard and understood for who we really are and to feel love and belonging, you know, seeing you in all of your, your greatness and your scaredness and your vulnerability and your flaws and knowing you and loving you in spite of, and because of those things, right. That's, that's what we really wanted as children. And that's what this gives us the opportunity to do. You know, as you say that, it, it's kind of a reframe. If I think about my own shame, it can kind of land as a child for me, thinking that what I want is to be better, to fit in more, to, to have skills, to change myself. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like through the lens of, of white supremacy, capitalism, and patriarchy, we even our understanding of shame get and our needs get so confused. It's like, oh yeah, no, I really do. I am bad. I do need to change. And just hearing you say that is healing. It says like, oh no, actually, I don't even realize that what I really want or wanted was just to be accepted for what I really already was. Mm-hmm. That's healing in and of itself. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Yeah. So there were some, you know some traits in the book that you talked about that just resonated with me so much as like, Oh my goodness, this is my life. I have this. And I kind of wanted to like talk to you and say, you know, this is what, how it shows up for me. And I just found it to be helpful to trace how it connects to this culture that we're in. So I'm going to give you an example. Um, So the people pleasing thing, Mm -hmm. my system is absolutely geared towards safety of approval from other people. I notice that I'm always scanning the room. Is everyone approving of me? Is that, you know, just like everywhere, everywhere I go. And so I wonder, like, do you see a connection between that pattern in me and the ways that we're habituated to parent in white supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalism? Is there a connection there? Yeah. And I guess firstly, I want to point out that, uh, and I'm I'm curious as to how this is going to land for you, and and whether uh, whether shame comes up in this in any way, right? What you just described is is a pattern that I mostly see among uh, females, female oriented people. Yeah. Um, and and even me saying that to you could be perceived as shaming, right? Because you are a masculine oriented person, and you're not supposed to be like women, right? Be, be, having feminine characteristics, not not good. <laughs> So I'm just curious as to how it's landing for you. I'm I'm like, yes, so true. You know, when I hear people talk about how women aren't supposed to get angry and men are supposed to get angry, that's a good example of how I don't relate to that. It's like, I don't feel like I can get angry. So instead I do the traditionally female people-pleasing thing, please like me. Yeah. But there is definitely shame probably 
in my drive to change my people pleasing because it's sort of not as culturally acceptable for me to be a people pleaser. Yeah. Yeah. Because a real man wouldn't do that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I have a lot of traits. Stand up. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Stand up for yourself and, you know, let the women take care of themselves. And <laughs> yeah. Um, so I have a lot of traits that are more considered masculine, right? I'm very rational. I look at the research um, and I've learned that part of that is related to the autism that I've self-diagnosed with the help of a, um, of a psychologist a year or so ago. And, um, and so I'm rewarded for that, right? I'm, I'm not traditionally feminine, but that's okay because masculine traits are, uh, are, are, are very much rewarded in our culture, which is why it's okay for girls to get into STEM careers, but yeah. not okay for boys to go into caring careers. So, um, and so, so coming back to your, um, your pattern of people pleasing, um, you know, where this came from ultimately is that you had needs and they were too big and too threatening. Um, I, I don't know where you are. I know you have siblings. I think I remember reading in your book, you have uh, a big family and it was kind of cool yeah. to be part of, of the Bond family. Uh, but there was something about being in that family that meant that there were a lot of people with a lot of different needs and your parents were probably pretty overwhelmed a lot of the time trying to figure out, you know, how do we make all these moving parts fit? And you, AJ, are too big and you had better squash that down. And oh, yeah. <laughs> and instead of making your needs felt, uh, you should make sure that you scan the room and anticipate and meet everybody else's needs because we cannot meet your needs as they are because you're too much for us. I'm, I'm wondering how much of that resonates. Totally resonates. Totally resonates. So this kind of, you know, sensible urge, like, hey, there's a big family here. We're trying to get everything happening for everyone. AJ, you need to tone it down a little bit. You know, that makes complete sense. But yet the impact it can have is these sort of uh, chronic patterns come up of like people pleasing, mm -hmm. which is which is not super advantageous in adulthood, you could argue. You could, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it has its advantages in that, uh, and particularly for, you know, for, for women, it is rewarded. It tends to be rewarded when you make everybody else happy, you get rewards. Um, yeah. But it's not advantageous for you uh, in, in terms of really being able to show up in the world as your true and whole self. Yeah. And it kind of raises something that, uh, that I wanted to, to see how you felt about this. You know, I, as I think about um, the whole idea of the nuclear family, Mm -hmm. It strikes me like, well, wait, how did we go from what I'm told is, you know, living our whole lives with a pack of 100 to 150 people to living our whole childhood with, you know, two adults all the time and a couple siblings, maybe. Mm -hmm. It almost seems like, well, that doesn't seem like the healthiest arrangement. And it does seem to connect probably to capitalism and probably patriarchy as well. Mm -hmm. And so like, how do you react to that? Does that, does that resonate with you? And, oh, absolutely. And how do we, how do we improve upon the offering of the nuclear family? Yeah. Um, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And so, so the, the nuclear family structure allows for a man to sit at the top, right. In a heterosexual uh, partnership, which the, the majority of partnerships are because that's what's rewarded in our culture. Um, yeah. So, so the man sitting at the top and the woman sitting underneath, 
uh, enforcing the same stuff, right? It's not that the woman is the victim. The woman is is enforcing the same patriarchal norms as the man is and yeah, the yeah. two children underneath that. And so that allows the man to be in control. It also means that uh, when you have a very small family unit uh, who, and it's only socially acceptable for that family unit to be by itself, everybody suddenly needs their own house. They need their own car. They need their own lawnmower. They need their own dishwasher. They need their own stove. So, so, whoa, we have markets for things. We can sell. Mm -hmm. And so competitive. So (laughs) comparative, right? Yes, yes. And by the way, uh, when we first arrived here with these norms that are kind of, you know, embedded in a Protestant work ethic and, and, uh, you know, the family structures, uh, in in the Americas, we're not like this, right? The Native Americans did not raise their children in nuclear families. And so through white supremacy, we said, your way of raising children is not good. Um, and you are going to use our ways of raising children and of being in the world. And um, and obviously genocide and, and lots of other things following from that. Um, mm-hmm. so, so yes, it's deeply embedded in all of these structures. And I mean, the irony to me of us telling indigenous people and black people for generations, your way of raising children is wrong and you need to use our way. And then, whoa, maybe it wasn't wrong. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe we were the ones who were wrong all along. And is it possible that being in uh, relationships with many people and having many people helping to take care of the child? So when the parent feels overwhelmed, they can just say, here, can you take a turn? (laughs) And that there's so many other people, right? There's you, there's uncles, there's aunts, there's other people who can help Um, is how we were meant to raise children. We were not meant to do this alone, which is why those of us who are living in our own little boxes by ourselves, raising two, three, four children, mm-hmm. feel overwhelmed so much of the time. Yeah. Yeah. So how do we, yeah. what, what do we do about this? We start yeah. building relationships with other people. So, you know, I've worked with parents who um, who are literally like they, they're, they're, uh, their co-parent is unavailable. They are so sick. They can barely get out of bed. And it's like, do can I can I call the neighbors? <laughs> can I ask for help? I mean, what's yeah. wrong with our culture that we can't ask for help unless it seems like we're actually dying? Can we build relationships where I can ask you for help? Because then that says, oh, we're in a relationship where we can ask each other for help. And so from there, we start to build these networks of relationships that are rewarding and nourishing and sustaining and that are not compensated. So they don't fit in the capitalist structure and they are not, you know, the the pyramid shape of patriarchy. And they are deeply uh, resonant of the kinds of ways that Black and Indigenous people have been living with their their, uh, kin networks for a very long time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it It really does all connect back to, you know, like, to do that is threatening to capitalism, yes. is threatening to patriarchy, is threatening to white supremacy. So it's, it's, it's kind of profound how interconnected these things are. Yeah. And yet, um, it sort of seems like there are two separate issues. Oh, there's parenting and it there's does. social justice. Yes, right? because because the social issues are, just, as you said earlier, just how things are. And we know that we aren't supposed to ask for this help because of the shame that we feel when we think about doing it. Yeah. Right? And, and so for the parents in your audience uh, who are thinking about, you know, who could I ask for help? Oh, there isn't anybody. 
I don't know any other parents. I don't have any family. Well, who says you can only ask for help from family? Who says you can only ask for help from people who have children, right? We, are, we often get that sense. I don't know anyone who has children. Why is it only people who have children that we can ask for help from? You know, yeah. we can consider uh, many, many other people as a resource and we can be a resource to those people as well. So, um, so yes, it is, is deeply healing to start forming these networks of people. And you yeah. are part of that network for your nieces and nephews yeah. in a way that is also healing in this culture. Yeah. Yeah. I can see how in a larger network like that, the child who's got big stuff, you know, mm-hmm. there's just more bandwidth, there's more capacity. So that doesn't need to be tamped down. And in a way, I think, you know, the tamping down is to protect my parents' needs implicitly. And in your book, uh, you talk about, like, how do we as parents protect our needs? Mm -hmm. And uh, I wonder if you could talk about that. I I noticed that you had a really cool distinction between, like, setting boundaries and setting limits. Mm -hmm. Does that play into it? Yeah, a little bit. I think um, a, a bigger part of it is maybe instead of seeing the strategies as we've been talking about throughout our conversation, right? I just need to, uh, to do this one thing. Well, that's the strategy that you're using to try to meet your need for, I don't know, connection. Right. And so when we can understand the need for connection, then we can imagine, okay, maybe I could go for a walk with my friend. Maybe I could call a friend. Maybe I could, uh, go and do a new activity I've never done before and meet new people. Right. There's so many different ways that I can meet that need for connection. Whereas when all I'm looking at is that one strategy, right. And, and your parents are sort of prioritizing their need for, for emotional safety and the one strategy they're using is AJ can it (laughs) keep it down whereas they actually had many other strategies available to them they could have asked for help from other people they could have resourced themselves in other ways and as adults we have the ability to do that our children don't as much right right? they we are everything to them (laughs) so it's it's on us to to see the ways that we want the the needs that are really important to us and to find multiple ways to get those needs met not all of which involve changing our child's behavior most of the time we can find ways in the struggles we're having with our child to meet both of our needs right so one strategy if i'm struggling with my my child is is you know i'm i'm overwhelmed right now by the noise and the movement my child is doing one thing i could do is i could move to another room <laughs> right? right that's a strategy right. that could work just as well it means that maybe i'm not exerting power over my child. Right. So it doesn't fit so well in patriarchy, but, uh, but it's a strategy that could work just as well as telling you to can it. And so we start to see more of those strategies available to us. It may be possible that we can't find a way that meets both of our needs. And then I'm going to set a boundary, right? Maybe AJ, you're looking for connection from me in that moment when you're jumping up and down. Maybe I can see that bid for connection that you were making by jumping up and down. And I could say, hey, it seems as though you're looking for my attention right now. Did you want to do something together for five minutes? <laughs> and, and then you stop jumping up and down because you were doing it to get my attention. And then mm-hmm. both of our needs get met. But it's possible that maybe I'm so overwhelmed in the moment I can't do that. And then I set a boundary. I say, I'm going to take five minutes to myself. I'm going to be in this room over here and I'll be back. And so we're doing that to protect ourselves. And maybe 7% of the time we want to be using boundaries, which is a lot more than many parents are using them, right? Most of the time we default to limits as our first right. resort. Um, and a limit is when I'm ch- is, is what your parents did to you, right? AJ, stop, stop it. Um, stop being too much. Like you're trying to change somebody else's behavior and nobody right. likes that. <laughs> right, right. 
So it sounds like the limit is like directing it at someone else. You yes. change. Yes. And the boundary I'm hearing more like, this is what I am going to do. Yes. Or, or, or this is or what I'm you. going to accept or something. Yes. Yeah. So maybe a boundary is uh, I am not willing to carry you up the stairs. If you're talking with a, a toddler whom you've carried up the stairs for a long time, they're getting too heavy for you to carry without hurting your back. I'm not willing to carry up the stairs anymore. And the toddler may have big feelings about that, right? It doesn't always feel amazing to be on the receiving end of somebody else's boundary. But if that is a genuine need of yours, right? The, the physical safety of knowing that your back is not going to get thrown out by carrying this heavy child, if that's a genuine need, then their discomfort is going to be a little easier to be with. That's very different from saying, you are going to do this because I say so, which is using right. our power over a child. And there will be three percent or so of instances when we we want to do that because we have the knowledge um about our uh, about the world that means that you know i i know that you're not going to be safe if you run into the street without looking both ways first (laughs) that's my job to keep you safe i'm going to set a limit on that behavior um but uh most parents i work with they they are flipping that right there's 90 percent of the time they're setting limits and very few uh, boundaries and never looking for the needs. And so we're basically talking right. about flipping, flipping the way that we yeah. work. Flipping it, but also it sounds to me like dramatically reducing the use of boundaries and limits anyway in favor of let's figure out a strategy that meets both needs. Definitely reducing limits. Um, most of the parents that I work with don't really know how to set boundaries. They think boundaries and limits are the same thing. And, uh, and and not understanding that a boundary is something that I am or I'm not willing to do. And when, when parents start learning about this, there's always this temptation to, they, they refer to it as flipping a boundary into a limit. So it's still a limit, but I'm going to, I'm going to use the word I at the beginning. <laughs> right. So it's going to sound like a boundary. <laughs> right. yeah. When instead our first place should be to look, what is the need for you, for my child? What is my need? And can we find a way to meet both of our needs? If not, can I set a boundary, right? I have to be able to set a boundary. I have to be willing to enforce the boundary. If I can't do that and I still don't want my child to do it, then a, a, a limit is the most appropriate tool. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is there sort of like, um, what happens when you screw it up? Is there a kind of a, uh, <laughs> a grace period or mm. like a repair? What, yes. Because obviously this is going to be, we're, we're going to be imperfect at this. This, yeah. is a, this is like learning a new language a bit. Yes. Uh, well, the good news is there are there's almost infinite grace <laughs> because when you start to do this with your children and they start to see that you're trying not to use power over them, they become so much more receptive and they see that you're trying to work with them. And sometimes even if you never even manage to identify the need, um, if your child is very young and you're thinking aloud, okay, I think this is about autonomy and I'm trying to give you as much choice as I can, but I, I it still doesn't seem as though we're quite there. The child sees us doing that. It's a very different place to be than you are going to brush your teeth because I say so. And then very often we may find that they come towards us. And so so even if we don't find the need, then still we can find progress. But sometimes, yes, right. we explode at our children. We, yeah. uh, we do things that we're not proud of. We do things that rupture the relationship. And then afterwards, we can go to them and say, I'm so sorry I did that, right? I mean, how how weird is that in a parenting relationship that the parent would come to the child and say, I'm so sorry that happened and not say, you did that and you need to apologize. 
But when we can apologize for our part in it and say, you know, I, I'm trying to raise you very differently than the way I was raised. And I don't always know what I'm doing, right? I would have been punished for doing the thing that you just did. And so when you do that, my initial response is, no, that's not okay. But then I try and connect with myself and I think, oh, actually, that is okay. That 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 does fit with my values, but it's like there's this tension inside me and I'm not sure which to do. <laughs> and so that's why I exploded. And I'm trying really hard not to do that and to pause before I say those things to you. And I'm so sorry it happened this time. And would you like a hug? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. So very like a kind of humility, self-awareness and transparency mm-hmm. that you don't yeah. get a lot of in our sort of hierarchical structured yeah. society. Oh yeah. Uh, Where really, it's not really okay ownership. to admit you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's really profound. And it sounds to me like just the mere act of trying to figure this stuff out signals a big shift. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, they're really trying to figure out what I need. It's not just about them. So I can see how it's beyond just the perfection of, oh, we got exactly the right need and exactly the right strategy, that that effort signals something really profound, a really profound shift already. Yeah, it really does. And, and our children see it and and they are receptive to it and they come towards it. And it's the start of, of really beautiful things. Yeah. Wow. Well, this seems like a beautiful place to start to wrap up. Is there anything we've missed that's like really kind of nagging at you that you want to that you want to bring up? Or does this feel like we've done a good kind of overview? Um, I think to end, I would just kind of reiterate something that I said earlier. If, if parents are listening to this and, and thinking, yeah, I, I, I can't do that. My child is too out of control. This will never work with my child. Start with something small. Start with an issue that is not super important to you that you've already decided you're going to allow your child to do and work through the process of understanding how is each of us feeling about this? What are our needs in this situation? What strategy will actually meet both of our needs? And just see what happens, right? See, see how your child responds to that and point out to them, you know, we went through this process, we found a way that meets both of our needs and then try it with a little bit of a bigger problem and say, hey, you know, we've, we, we figured it out last time. We figured out a way to meet both of our needs. Can we try it again with this issue? And, and just see how much your child is willing to come towards you. And it's going to feel weird at first. It's going to feel clunky and like the words won't come. And so we have some starter scripts in the book to, um, to help parents to, to get the conversation kicked off. I know parents often want scripts and I can't give you scripts because I don't know what your child needs. (laughs) And I don't know what your needs are either. So that's why the scripts never work in books, but I can give you a few phrases to start out. So there's all that stuff in the book, the the cupcakes uh, templates to to help you figure out your needs and your child's needs Um, and and all kinds of resources as well available, um, uh, how-to videos and that kind of thing to help you get started in using these tools um, at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash book. Yeah, that's great. And is there, you do coaching work as well? Like, do you have space for clients? Is there an opportunity that people could work with you as well? Yeah, I do uh, courses and a membership as well. And so the, the one of the main courses I teach is called Taming Your Triggers. And that's really coming at it from the parent's perspective. So, you know, I, I'm exploding at my child and I don't know why and I don't know what to do or I know what to do. Right. I know I'm supposed to pause and I can't figure out how to do it. 
<laughs> and so uh, helping us to understand where did this stuff come from? Why are you exploding at your child in the first place? Very often it's related to childhood trauma and our child doing things that uh, remind us of things that we were punished for doing when we were kids. Um, and so uh, uh, understanding where that came from, beginning to heal that and, uh, and learning the new tools to show up differently in that relationship. And then uh, the parenting membership uh, is very much more focused on the child and the child's needs and seeing those and supporting them in, in their growth and development, understanding our values, like where are we going? <laughs> How do we want to be together as we are on this, on this journey together? Oh, and if we believe this, why are we doing this? <laughs> right. you know, so yeah. often a disconnect between our values yeah. and the ways we're interacting with our children. Um, and so, yeah, both of those are available to parents as well. And it's uh, all, all flows through yourparentingmojo.com. Great. Yeah. And I really encourage people to check out your podcast, your parenting mojo and the book. I am excited to finish it, even though I'm not a parent. I feel like it's already really got me thinking about how I want to interact with the next generation of my family. So uh, it's uh, by the time this podcast comes out, the book will be released. So please check out Parenting Beyond Power. And thank you so much for chatting with me today, Jen. Thanks, AJ. It was really fun to be with you. <laughs>